Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. The Age of Innocence a novel by Edith Wharton. Read for LibriVox by Brenda Dane. Chapter 31 Archer had been stunned by old Catherine's news. It was only natural that Madame Olenska should have hastened from Washington in response to her grandmother's summons. But that she should have decided to remain under her roof, especially now, that Mrs. Mingott had almost regained her health, was less easy to explain. Archer was sure that Madame Olenska's decision had not been influenced by the change in her financial situation. He knew the exact figure of the small income which her husband had allowed her at their separation. Without the addition of her grandmother's allowance, it was hardly enough to live on in any sense known to the Mingott vocabulary, and now that Medora Manson, who shared her life, had been ruined, such a pittance would barely keep the two women clothed and fed. Yet Archer was convinced that Madame Olenska had not accepted her grandmother's offer from interested motives. She had the heedless generosity and the spasmodic extravagance of persons used to large fortunes and indifferent to money. But she could go without many things which her relations considered indispensable. And Mrs. Lovell Mingott and Mrs. Welland had often been heard to deplore that anyone who had enjoyed the cosmopolitan luxuries of Count Olenski's establishments should care so little about how things were done. Moreover, as Archer knew... Several months had passed since her allowance had been cut off. Yet in the interval she had made no effort to regain her grandmother's favor. Therefore, if she had changed her course, it must be for a different reason. He did not have far to seek for that reason. On the way from the ferry she had told him that he and she must remain apart but she had said it with her head on his breast. He knew that there was no calculated coquetry in her words. She was fighting her fate, as he had fought his, and clinging desperately to her resolve that they should not break faith with the people who trusted them. 
But during the ten days, which had elapsed since her return to New York, she had perhaps guessed from his silence, and from the fact of his making no attempt to see her, that he was meditating a decisive step, a step from which there was no turning back. At the thought, a sudden fear of her own weakness might have seized her, and she might have felt that, after all, it was better to accept the compromise usual in such cases, and follow the line of least resistance. An hour earlier, when he had rung Mrs. Mingott's bell, Archer had fancied that his path was clear before him. He had meant to have a word alone with Madame Olenska, and failing that, to learn from her grandmother on what day and by which train she was returning to Washington. In that train, he intended to join her, and travel with her to Washington, or as much farther as she was willing to go. His own fancy inclined to Japan. At any rate, she would understand at once that, wherever she went, he was going. He meant to leave a note for May that should cut off any other alternative. He had fancied himself not only nerved for this plunge, but eager to take it. Yet his first feeling, on hearing that the course of events was changed, had been one of relief. Now, however, as he walked home from Mrs. Mingott's, he was conscious of a growing distaste for what lay before him. There was nothing unknown or unfamiliar in the path he was presumably to tread. But when he had trodden it before, it was as a free man, who was accountable to no one for his actions, and could lend himself with an amused detachment to the game of precautions and prevarications, concealments and compliances, that the part required. This procedure was called protecting a woman's honor, and the best fiction, combined with the after-dinner talk of his elders, had long since initiated him into every detail of its code. Now he saw the matter in a new light, and his part in it seemed singularly diminished. It was, in fact, that which with a secret fatuity he had watched Mrs. Thorley Rushworth play towards a fond and unperceiving husband, a smiling, bantering, humoring, watchful and incessant lie. A lie by day, a lie by night, a lie in every touch and every look, a lie in every caress and every quarrel, a lie in every word and in every silence. It was easier, and less dastardly on the whole, for a wife to play such a part towards her husband. A woman's standard of truthfulness was tacitly held to be lower. She was the subject creature, and versed in the arts of the enslaved. Then she could always plead moods, and nerves, and the right not to be held too strictly to account. And even in the most straight-laced societies, the laugh was always against the husband. 
but in Archer's little world, no one laughed at a wife deceived. And a certain measure of contempt was attached to men who continued their philandering after marriage. In the rotation of crops, there was a recognized season for wild oats, but they were not to be sown more than once. Archer had always shared this view. In his heart, he thought Lefferts despicable. But to love Ellen Olenska was not to become a man like Lefferts. For the first time, Archer found himself face to face with the dread argument of the individual case. Ellen Olenska was like no other woman. He was like no other man. Their situation, therefore, resembled no one else's, and they were answerable to no tribunal but that of their own judgment. Yes, but in ten minutes more, he would be mounting his own doorstep, and there were May, and habit, and honor, and all the old decencies that he and his people had always believed in. At his corner he hesitated, and then walked down Fifth Avenue. Ahead of him, in the winter night, loomed a big, unlit house. As he drew near, he thought how often he had seen it blazing with lights, its steps awninged and carpeted, and carriages waiting in double line to draw up at the curbstone. It was in the conservatory that stretched its dead black bulk down the side street that he had taken his first kiss from May. It was under the myriad candles of the ballroom that he had seen her appear, tall and silver-shining as a young Diana. Now the house was as dark as the grave, except for a faint flare of gas in the basement, and a light in one upstairs room where the blind had not been lowered. As Archer reached the corner, he saw that the carriage standing at the door was Mrs. Manson Mingotts. What an opportunity for Sillerton Jackson, if he should chance to pass! Archer had been greatly moved by old Catherine's account of Madame Olenska's attitude towards Mrs. Beaufort. It made the righteous reprobation of New York seem like a passing by on the other side. But he knew well enough what construction the clubs and drawing-rooms would put on Ellen Olenska's visits to her cousin. He paused and looked up at the lighted window. No doubt the two women were sitting together in that room. Beaufort had probably sought consolation elsewhere. There were even rumors that he had left New York with Fanny Ring, but Mrs. Beaufort's attitude made the report seem improbable. Archer had the nocturnal perspective of Fifth Avenue almost to himself. At that hour, most people were indoors dressing for dinner, and he was secretly glad that Ellen's exit was likely to be unobserved. As the thought passed through his mind, the door opened and she came out. Behind her was a faint light, 
such as might have been carried down the stairs to show her the way. She turned to say a word to someone, then the door closed, and she came down the steps. Ellen, he said in a low voice as she reached the pavement. She stopped with a slight start, and just then he saw two young men of fashionable cut approaching. There was a familiar air about their overcoats, and the way their smart silk mufflers were folded over their white ties, and he wondered how youths of their quality happened to be dining out so early. Then he remembered that the Reggie Chiverses, whose house was a few doors above, were taking a large party that evening to see Adelaide Nielsen in Romeo and Juliet, and guessed that the two were of the number. They passed under a lamp, and he recognized Lawrence Lefferts and a young Chivers. A mean desire not to have Madame Olenska seen at the Beaufort's door vanished as he felt the penetrating warmth of her hand. I shall see you now. We shall be together, he broke out, hardly knowing what he said. Oh, she answered, Granny has told you. While he watched her, he was aware that Lefferts and Chivers, on reaching the farther side of the street corner, had discreetly struck away across Fifth Avenue. It was the kind of masculine solidarity that he himself often practiced. Now he sickened at their connivance. Did she really imagine that he and she could live like this? And if not, what else did she imagine? Tomorrow I must see you, somewhere where we can be alone, he said in a voice that sounded almost angry to his own ears. She wavered and moved towards the carriage. But I shall be at Granny's, for the present, that is, she added, as if conscious that her change of plans required some explanation. Somewhere where we can be alone, he insisted. She gave a faint laugh that grated on him. In New York, but there are no churches, no monuments. There's the art museum, in the park, he explained, as she looked puzzled. At half past two, I shall be at the door. She turned away without answering, and got quickly into the carriage. As it drove off, she leaned forward, and he thought she waved her hand in the obscurity. He started after her in a turmoil of contradictory feelings. It seemed to him that he had been speaking, not to the woman he loved, but to another, a woman he was indebted to for pleasures already wearied of. It was hateful to find himself the prisoner of this hackneyed vocabulary. She'll come, he said to himself, almost contemptuously. Avoiding the popular wolf collection, whose anecdotic canvases filled one of the main galleries of the queer wilderness of cast-iron and encaustic tiles known as the Metropolitan Museum, they had wandered down a passage to the room where the Cessnola antiquities moldered in unvisited loneliness. They had this melancholy retreat to themselves, and seated on the divan, enclosing the central steam radiator, they were staring silently at the glass cabinets 
mounted in ebonized wood, which contained the recovered fragments of Ilium. It's odd, Madame Olenska said. I never came here before. Ah, oh, well, some day I suppose it will be a great museum. Yes, she assented absently. She stood up and wandered across the room. Archer, remaining seated, watched the light movements of her figure, so girlish even under its heavy furs, the cleverly planted heron wing on her fur cap, and the way a dark curl lay like a flattened vine spiral on each cheek above the ear. His mind, as always when they first met, was wholly absorbed in the delicious details that made her herself and no other. Presently he rose and approached the case before which she stood. Its glass shelves were crowded with small, broken objects, hardly recognizable domestic utensils, ornaments and personal trifles made of glass, of clay, of discolored bronze, and other time-blurred substances. It seems cruel, she said, that after a while nothing matters, any more than these little things that used to be necessary and important to forgotten people, and now have to be guessed at under a magnifying glass and labeled Use Unknown. Yes, but meanwhile, ah, meanwhile, as she stood there in her long sealskin coat, her hands thrust in a small round muff, her veil drawn down like a transparent mask to the tip of her nose, and the bunch of violets he had brought her, stirring with her quickly taken breath, it seemed incredible that this pure harmony of line and color should ever suffer the stupid law of change. Meanwhile, everything matters that concerns you, he said. She looked at him thoughtfully and turned back to the divan. He sat down beside her and waited, but suddenly he heard a step echoing far off down the empty rooms, and felt the pressure of the minutes. "'What is it you wanted to tell me?' she asked, as if she had received the same warning. "'What I wanted to tell you,' he rejoined. "'Why, that I believe you came to New York because you were afraid. "'Afraid? "'Of my coming to Washington.' She looked down at her muff, and he saw her hands stir in it uneasily. Well? Well, yes, she said. You were afraid. You knew. Yes, I knew. Well, then, he insisted. Well, then, this is better, isn't it? She returned with a long, questioning sigh. Better? We shall hurt others less. Isn't it, after all, what you always wanted? To have you here, you mean, 
in reach and yet out of reach, to meet you in this way on the sly? It's the very reverse of what I want. I told you the other day what I wanted. She hesitated. And you still think this worse? A thousand times, he paused. It would be easy to lie to you, but the truth is I think it detestable. Oh, so do I, she cried with a deep breath of relief. He sprang up impatiently. Well, then, it's my turn to ask, what is it in God's name that you think better? She hung her head and continued to clasp and unclasp her hands in her muff. The step drew nearer, and a guardian in a braided cap walked listlessly through the room, like a ghost stalking through a necropolis. They fixed their eyes, simultaneously, on the case opposite them, and when the official figure had vanished down a vista of mummies and sarcophagi, Archer spoke again. What do you think better? Instead of answering, she murmured, I promised Granny to stay with her because it seemed to me that here I should be safer. From me? She bent her head slightly without looking at him. Safer from loving me? Her profile did not stir. But he saw a tear overflow on her lashes and hang on a mesh of her veil. Safer from doing irreparable harm. Don't let us be like all the others, she protested. What others? I don't profess to be different from my kind. I'm consumed by the same wants and the same longings. She glanced at him with a kind of terror, and he saw a faint color steal into her cheeks. Shall I once come to you? and then go home, she suddenly hazarded in a clear voice. The blood rushed to the young man's forehead. Dearest, he said without moving. It seemed as if he held his heart in his hands, like a full cup, that the least motion might overbrim. Then her last phrase struck his ear and his face clouded, Go home. What do you mean by going home? Home to my husband. And you expect me to say yes to that? She raised her troubled eyes to his. What else is there? I can't stay here and lie to the people who've been good to me. But that's the very reason why I ask you to come away and destroy their lives when they've helped me to remake mine. Archer sprang to his feet and stood looking down on her in inarticulate despair. It would have been easy to say, Yes, come. Come once. He knew the power she would put in his hands if she consented. There would be no difficulty then in persuading her not to go back to her husband. But something silenced the word on his lips. A sort of passionate honesty in her made it inconceivable 
that he should try to draw her into that familiar trap. If I were to let her come, he said to himself, I should have to let her go again. And that was not to be imagined. But he saw the shadow of the lashes on her wet cheek and wavered. After all, he began again, we have lives of our own. There's no use attempting the impossible. You're so unprejudiced about some things, so used, as you say, to looking at the Gorgon, that I don't know why you're afraid to face our case, to see it as it really is, unless you think the sacrifice is not worth making. She stood up also, her lips tightening under a rapid frown. "'Call it that, then. I must go,' she said, drawing her little watch from her bosom. She turned away, and he followed, and caught her by the wrist. "'Well, then, come to me once,' he said, his head turning suddenly at the thought of losing her. And for a second or two they looked at each other almost like enemies. "'When?' he insisted. "'Tomorrow?' She hesitated. The day after. Dearest, he said again. She had disengaged her wrist, but for a moment they continued to hold each other's eyes, and he saw that her face, which had grown very pale, was flooded with a deep inner radiance. His heart beat with awe. He felt that he had never before beheld Love, visible. Oh, I shall be late. Goodbye. No, don't come any farther than this, she cried, walking hurriedly away down the long room, as if the reflected radiance in his eyes had frightened her. When she reached the door, she turned for a moment to wave a quick farewell. Archer walked home alone. Darkness was falling when he let himself into his house, and he looked about at the familiar objects in the hall, as if he viewed them from the other side of the grave. The parlor-maid, hearing his step, ran up the stairs to light the gas on the upper landing. Is Mrs. Archer in? No, sir. Mrs. Archer went out in the carriage after luncheon and hasn't come back. With a sense of relief... He entered the library and flung himself down in his armchair. The parlor-maid followed, bringing the student lamp and shaking some coals onto the dying fire. When she left, he continued to sit motionless, his elbows on his knees, his chin on his clasped hands, his eyes fixed on the red grate. He sat there, without conscious thoughts, without sense of the lapse of time, in a deep and grave amazement that seemed to suspend life rather than quicken it. This was what had to be, then. This was what had to be, he kept repeating to himself, as if he hung in the clutch of doom. What he had dreamed of had been so different that there was a mortal chill in his rapture. The door opened and May came in. I'm dreadfully late, 
You weren't worried, were you? she asked, laying her hand on his shoulder with one of her rare caresses. He looked up, astonished. Is it late? After seven, I believe you've been asleep, she laughed, and drawing out her hat pins, tossed her velvet hat on the sofa. She looked paler than usual, but sparkling with an unwanted animation. I went to see Granny, and just as I was going away, Ellen came in from a walk, so I stayed and had a long talk with her. It was ages since we'd had a real talk. She had dropped into her usual armchair, facing his, and was running her fingers through her rumpled hair. He fancied she expected him to speak. A really good talk, she went on, smiling with what seemed to Archer an unnatural vividness. She was so dear, just like the old Ellen. I'm afraid I haven't been fair to her lately. I've sometimes thought. Archer stood up and leaned against the mantelpiece, out of the radius of the lamp. Yes, you've thought, he echoed as she paused. Well, perhaps I haven't judged her fairly. She's so different, at least on the surface. She takes up such odd people. She seems to like to make herself conspicuous. I suppose it's the life she's led in that fast European society. No doubt we seem dreadfully dull to her. But I don't want to judge her unfairly. She paused again, a little breathless with the unwanted length of her speech, and sat with her lips slightly parted and a deep blush on her cheeks. Archer, as he looked at her, was reminded of the glow which had suffused her face in the mission garden at St. Augustine. He became aware of the same obscure effort in her, the same reaching out towards something beyond the usual range of her vision. She hates Ellen, he thought, and she's trying to overcome the feeling and to get me to help her to overcome it. The thought moved him, and for a moment he was on the point of breaking the silence between them and throwing himself on her mercy. You understand, don't you, she went on, why the family have sometimes been annoyed. We all did what we could for her at first, but she never seemed to understand. And now this idea of going to see Mrs. Beaufort, of going there in Granny's carriage. I'm afraid she's quite alienated the Vanderloydens. Ah, said Archer with an impatient laugh. The open door had closed between them again. It's time to dress. We're dining out, aren't we? he asked, moving from the fire. She rose also, but lingered near the hearth. As he walked past her, she moved forward impulsively, as though to detain him. Their eyes met, and he saw that hers were of the same swimming blue as when he had left her to drive to Jersey City. She flung her arms about his neck and pressed her cheek to his. You haven't kissed me today, she said in a whisper, and he felt her tremble in his arms. End of chapter 31 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www. 
www.librivox.org. The Age of Innocence, a novel by Edith Wharton, read for LibriVox by Brenda Dane. Chapter Thirty Two. At the court of the Tuileries, said Mister Sillerton Jackson with his reminiscent smile, such things were pretty openly tolerated. The scene was the Vanderloyden's Black Walnut Dining Room, in Madison Avenue, and the time, the evening after Newland Archer's visit to the Museum of Art. Mister and Missus Vanderloyden had come to town for a few days from Scoiter Cliff, whither they had precipitately fled at the announcement of Beaufort's failure. It had been represented to them that the disarray into which society had been thrown by this deplorable affair made their presence in town more necessary than ever. It was one of the occasions when, as Mrs. Archer put it, they owed it to society to show themselves at the opera and even to open their own doors. It will never do, my dear Louisa, to let people like Mrs. Lemuel Struthers think they can step into Regina's shoes. It is just at such times that new people push in and get a footing. It was owing to the epidemic of chickenpox in New York the winter Mrs. Struthers first appeared that the married men slipped away to her house while their wives were in the nursery. You and dear Henry, Louisa. Must stand in the breach, as you always have. Mister and Missus Vanderloyden could not remain deaf to such a call, and reluctantly, but heroically, they had come to town, unmuffled the house, and sent out invitations for two dinners and an evening reception. On this particular evening, they had invited Sillerton Jackson. Mrs. Archer and Newland and his wife to go with them to the opera, where Faust was being sung for the first time that winter. Nothing was done without ceremony under the Vanderloyden roof, and though there were but four guests, the repast had begun at seven, punctually, so that the proper sequence of courses might be served without haste before the gentlemen settled down to their cigars. Archer had not seen his wife since the evening before. He had left early for the office, where he had plunged into an accumulation of unimportant business. In the afternoon, one of the senior partners had made an unexpected call on his time, and he had reached home so late that May had preceded him to the Vanderloydens and sent back the carriage. Now. Across the Squatter Cliff carnations and the massive plate, she struck him as pale and languid, but her eyes shone and she talked with exaggerated animation. The subject which had called forth Mister Sillerton Jackson's favorite allusion had been brought up, Archer fancied not without intention, by their hostess. The Beaufort failure, or rather. The Beaufort attitude since the failure was still a fruitful theme for the drawing room moralist, and after it had been thoroughly examined and condemned, Mrs. Vanderloyden had turned her scrupulous eyes on May Archer. Is it possible, dear, that what I hear is true? 
I was told your grandmother Mingott's carriage was seen standing at Mrs. Beaufort's door. It was noticeable that she no longer called the offending lady by her Christian name. May's color rose, and Mrs. Archer put in hastily, If it was, I'm convinced it was there without Mrs. Mingott's knowledge. Oh, you think... Mrs. van der Luyden paused, sighed, and glanced at her husband. I'm afraid, Mr. van der Luyden said, that Madame Olenska's kind heart may have led her into the imprudence of calling on Mrs. Beaufort, or her taste for peculiar people, put in Mrs. Archer in a dry tone, while her eyes dwelt innocently on her son's. I'm sorry to think it of Madame Olenska, said Mrs. van der Luyden, and Mrs. Archer murmured, Oh, my dear, and after you had her twice at Scoiter Cliff. It was at this point that Mr. Jackson seized the chance to place his favorite allusion. At the Tuileries, he repeated, seeing the eyes of the company expectantly turned on him. The standard was excessively lax in some respects, and if you'd asked where Morney's money came from, or who paid the debts of some of the court beauties, I hope, dear Sillerton, said Mrs. Archer, you are not suggesting that we should adopt such standards. I never suggest, returned Mr. Jackson imperturbably. But Madame Olenska's foreign bringing up may make her less particular. Ah, the two ladies sighed. Still, to have kept her grandmother's carriage at a defaulter's door, Mr. van der Luyden protested, and Archer guessed that he was remembering and resenting the hampers of carnations he had sent to the little house on 23rd Street. Of course, I've always said that she looks at things quite differently, Mrs. Archer summed up. A flush rose to May's forehead. She looked across the table at her husband and said, precipitately, I'm sure Ellen meant it kindly. Imprudent people are often kind, said Mrs. Archer, as if the fact were scarcely an extenuation. And Mrs. van der Luyden murmured, if only she had consulted someone. Ah, that she never did, Mrs. Archer rejoined. At this point, Mr. van der Luyden glanced at his wife, who bent her head slightly in the direction of Mrs. Archer, and the glimmering trains of the three ladies swept out of the door while the gentlemen settled down to their cigars. Mr. van der Luyden supplied short ones on opera nights, but they were so good that they made his guests deplore his inexorable punctuality. Archer, after the first act, had detached himself from the party and made his way to the back of the club box. From there he watched, over various Chivers, Mingott, and Rushworth shoulders, the same scene that he had looked at two years previously, on the night of his first meeting with Ellen Olenska. He half expected her to appear again in old Mrs. Mingott's box, but it had remained empty, and he sat motionless, his eyes fastened on it, till suddenly Madame Nilsson's pure soprano broke into Mama, no Mama. Archer turned to the stage, 
where, in the familiar setting of giant roses and pen-wiper pansies, the same large blonde victim was succumbing to the same small brown seducer. From the stage, his eyes wandered to the point of the horseshoe, where May sat between two older ladies, just as, on that former evening, she had sat between Mrs. Lovell Mingott and her newly arrived foreign cousin. As on that evening, she was all in white. An archer, who had not noticed what she wore, recognized the blue-white satin and old lace of her wedding dress. It was the custom in old New York for brides to appear in this costly garment during the first year or two of marriage. His mother, he knew, kept hers in tissue paper in the hope that Janie might someday wear it, though poor Janie was reaching the age when pearl-gray poplin and no bridesmaids would be thought more appropriate. It struck Archer that May, since their return from Europe, had seldom worn her bridal satin, and the surprise of seeing her in it made him compare her appearance with that of the young girl he had watched with such blissful anticipations two years earlier. Though May's outline was slightly heavier, as her goddess-like build had foretold, her athletic erectness of carriage and the girlish transparency of her expression remained unchanged, but for the slight languor that Archer had lately noticed in her, she would have been the exact image of the girl playing with the bouquet of lilies of the valley on her betrothal evening. The fact seemed an additional appeal to his pity. Such innocence was as moving as the trustful clasp of a child. Then he remembered the passionate generosity latent under that incurious calm. He recalled her glance of understanding when he had urged that their engagement should be announced at the Beaufort Ball. He heard the voice in which she had said in the Mission Garden, I couldn't have my happiness made out of a wrong, a wrong to someone else, and an uncontrollable longing seized him to tell her the truth and throw himself on her generosity and ask for the freedom he had once refused. Newland Archer was a quiet and self-controlled young man. Conformity to the discipline of a small society had become almost his second nature. It was deeply distasteful to him to do anything melodramatic and conspicuous, anything Mr. Vanderloyden would have deprecated and the club box condemned as bad form. But he had become suddenly unconscious of the club box, of Mr. Vanderloyden, of all that had so long enclosed him in the warm shelter of habit. He walked along the semicircular passage at the back of the house and opened the door of Mrs. Vanderloyden's box, as if it had been a gate into the unknown. Mama, trilled out the triumphant Marguerite, and the occupants of the box looked up in surprise at Archer's entrance. 
he had already broken one of the rules of his world, which forbade the entering of a box during a solo. Slipping between Mr. Vanderloyden and Sillerton Jackson, he leaned over his wife. I've got a beastly headache. Don't tell anyone, but come home, won't you? he whispered. May gave him a glance of comprehension, and he saw her whisper to his mother, who nodded sympathetically, and then she murmured an excuse to Mrs. Vanderloyden and rose from her seat, just as Marguerite fell into Faust's arms. Archer, while he helped her on with her opera cloak, noticed the exchange of a significant smile between the older ladies. As they drove away, May laid her hand shyly on his. I'm sorry you don't feel well. I'm afraid they've been overworking you at the office. No, it's not that. Do you mind if I open the window? He returned confusedly, letting down the pane on his side. He sat staring out into the street, feeling his wife beside him as a silent, watchful interrogation and keeping his eyes steadily fixed on the passing houses. At their door, she caught her skirt in the step of the carriage and fell against him. Did you hurt yourself? he asked, steadying her with his arm. No, but my poor dress! See how I've torn it! she exclaimed. She bent to gather up a mud-stained breadth, and followed him up the steps into the hall. The servants had not expected them so early, and there was only a glimmer of gas on the upper landing. Archer mounted the stairs, turned up the light, and put a match to the brackets on each side of the library mantelpiece. The curtains were drawn, and the warm, friendly aspect of the room smote him, like that of a familiar face met during an unavowable errand. He noticed that his wife was very pale, and asked if she should get her some brandy. Oh, no, she exclaimed with a momentary flush as she took off her cloak. But hadn't you better go to bed at once, she added, as she opened a silver box on the table and took out a cigarette. Archer threw down the cigarette and walked to his usual place by the fire. No, my head is not as bad as that, he paused. And there's something I want to say, something important, that I must tell you at once. She had dropped into an armchair and raised her head as he spoke. Yes, dear, she rejoined, so gently that he wondered at the lack of wonder with which she received this preamble. May, he began, standing a few feet from her chair and looking over at her as if the slight distance between them were an unbridgeable abyss. The sound of his voice echoed uncannily through the home-like hush, and he repeated, There's something I've got to tell you, about myself. She sat silent, without a movement or a tremor of her lashes. She was still extremely pale, but her face had a curious tranquility of expression that seemed drawn from some secret inner source. Archer checked the conventional phrases of self-accusal that were crowding to his lips, 
he was determined to put the case baldly, without vain recrimination or excuse. Madame Olenska, he said, but at the name his wife raised her hand as if to silence him. As she did so, the gaslight struck on the gold of her wedding ring. Oh, why should we talk of Ellen tonight? she asked with a slight pout of impatience. Because I ought to have spoken before. Her face remained calm. Is it really worthwhile, dear? I know I've been unfair to her at times. Perhaps we all have. You've understood her no doubt better than we did. You've always been kind to her. But what does it matter? Now it's all over. Archer looked at her blankly. Could it be possible that the sense of unreality in which he felt himself imprisoned had communicated itself to his wife? All over. What do you mean? he asked in an indistinct stammer. May still looked at him with transparent eyes. Why, since she's going back to Europe so soon, since Granny approves and understands and has arranged to make her independent of her husband, she broke off. And Archer, grasping the corner of the mantelpiece in one convulsed hand and steadying himself against it, made a vain effort to extend the same control to his reeling thoughts. I supposed, he heard his wife's voice go on, that you had been kept at the office this evening about the business arrangements. It was settled this morning, I believe. She lowered her lashes under his unseeing stare, and another fugitive flush passed over her face. He understood that his own eyes must be unbearable and turning away, rested his elbows on the mantel-shelf and covered his face. Something drummed and clanged furiously in his ears. He could not tell if it were the blood in his veins or the tick of the clock on the mantel. May sat without moving or speaking, while the clock slowly measured out five minutes. A lump of coal fell forward in the grate, and hearing her rise to push it back, Archer at length turned and faced her. "'It's impossible,' he exclaimed. "'Impossible? How do you know what you've just told me? I saw Ellen yesterday. I told you I'd seen her at Granny's. It was then that she told you? No, I had a note from her this afternoon. Do you want to see it?' He could not find his voice, and she went out of the room and came back almost immediately. I thought you knew, she said simply. She laid a sheet of paper on the table, and Archer put out his hand and took it up. The letter contained only a few lines. May, dear, I have at last made Granny understand that my visit to her could be no more than a visit, and she has been as kind and generous as ever. She sees now that if I return to Europe I must live by myself, or rather with poor Aunt Medora, who is coming with me. I am hurrying back to Washington to pack up, and we sail next week. You must be very good to Granny when I'm gone, as good as you've always been to me. Ellen
If any of my friends wish to urge me to change my mind, please tell them it would be utterly useless. Archer read the letter over two or three times. Then he flung it down and burst out laughing. The sound of his laugh startled him. It recalled Janie's midnight fright when she had caught him rocking with incomprehensible mirth over May's telegram announcing that the date of their marriage had been advanced. Why did she write this? he asked, checking his laugh with a supreme effort. May met the question with her unshaken candor. I suppose because we talked things over yesterday. What things? I told her I was afraid I hadn't been fair to her, hadn't always understood how hard it must have been for her here, alone among so many people who were relations and yet strangers, who felt the right to criticize and yet didn't always know the circumstances. She paused. I knew you'd been the one friend she could always count on, and I wanted her to know that you and I were the same in all our feelings. She hesitated, as if waiting for him to speak, and then added slowly, She understood my wishing to tell her this. I think she understands everything. She went up to Archer, and taking one of his cold hands, pressed it quickly against her cheek. My head aches, too. Good night, dear, she said, and turned to the door, her torn and muddy wedding dress dragging after her across the room. End of Chapter 32 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. The Age of Innocence, a novel by Edith Wharton. Read for LibriVox by Brenda Dane. Chapter 33 It was, as Mrs. Archer smilingly said to Mrs. Welland, a great event for a young couple to give their first big dinner. The Newland archers, since they had set up their household, had received a good deal of company in an informal way. Archer was fond of having three or four friends to dine, and May welcomed them with the beaming readiness of which her mother had set her the example in conjugal affairs. Her husband questioned whether, if left to herself— she would ever have asked anyone to the house. But he had long given up trying to disengage her real self from the shape into which tradition and training had molded her. It was expected that well-off couples in New York should do a great deal of informal entertaining, and a Welland, married to an archer, was doubly pledged to the tradition. But a big dinner with a hired chef and two borrowed footmen, with Roman punch, roses from Henderson's, and menus on gilt-edged cards, was a different affair, and not to be lightly undertaken. As Mrs. Archer remarked, 
the Roman punch made all the difference, not in itself, but by its manifold implications, since it signified either canvasbacks or terrapin, two soups, a hot and a cold sweet, full decotage with short sleeves, and guests of a proportionate importance. It was always an interesting occasion when a young pair launched their first invitations in the third person, and their summons was seldom refused ever by the seasoned and sought-after. Still, it was admittedly a triumph that the Vanderloydens, at May's request, should have stayed over in order to be present at her farewell dinner for the Countess Olenska. The two mothers-in-law sat in May's drawing-room on the afternoon of the great day, Mrs. Archer writing out the menus on Tiffany's thickest gilt-edged Bristol, while Mrs. Welland superintended the placing of the palms and standard lamps. Archer, arriving late from his office, found them still there. Mrs. Archer had turned her attention to the name-cards for the table, and Mrs. Welland was considering the effect of bringing forward the large gilt sofa, so that another corner might be created between the piano and the window. May, they told him, was in the dining-room, inspecting the mound of Jacqueminot roses and maidenhair in the center of the long table, and the placing of the Maillard bonbons in open-work silver baskets between the candelabra. On the piano stood a large basket of orchids, which Mr. Vanderloyden had sent from Scoiter Cliff. Everything was, in short, as it should be, on the approach of so considerable an event. Mrs. Archer ran thoughtfully over the list, checking off each name with her sharp gold pen. Henry Vanderloyden, Louisa, the Lovell Mingotts, the Reggie Chiverses, Lawrence Lefferts and Gertrude, yes, I suppose May was right to have them, the Selfridge Marys, Sillerton Jackson, Van Newland and his wife, how time passes. It seems only yesterday he was your best man, Newland. And Countess Olenska. Yes, I think that's all. Mrs. Welland surveyed her son-in-law affectionately. No one can say, Newland, that you and May are not giving Ellen a handsome send-off. Ah, oh, well, said Mrs. Archer, I understand May's wanting her cousin to tell people abroad that we're not quite barbarians. I'm sure Ellen will appreciate it. She was to arrive this morning, I believe. It will make a most charming last impression. The evening before sailing is usually so dreary, Mrs. Welland cheerfully continued. Archer turned towards the door, and his mother-in-law called to him, do go in and have a peep at the table, and don't let May tire herself too much. But he affected not to hear, and sprang up the stairs to his library. The room looked at him like an alien countenance composed into a polite grimace, and he perceived that it had been ruthlessly tidied and prepared by a judicious distribution of ashtrays and cedarwood boxes for the gentleman to smoke in. Ah, well, he thought, it's not for long, and he went to his dressing-room. 
Ten days had passed since Madame Olenska's departure from New York. During those ten days, Archer had had no sign from her, but that conveyed by the return of a key wrapped in tissue paper and sent to his office in a sealed envelope addressed in her hand. This retort to his last appeal might have been interpreted as a classic move in a familiar game. But the young man chose to give it a different meaning. She was still fighting against her fate, but she was going to Europe, and she was not returning to her husband. Nothing, therefore, was to prevent his following her, and once he had taken the irrevocable step, and had proved to her that it was irrevocable, he believed she would not send him away. This confidence in the future had steadied him to play his part in the present. It had kept him from writing to her or betraying by any sign or act his misery and mortification. It seemed to him that in the deadly silent game between them the trumps were still in his hands, and he waited. There had been, nevertheless, moments sufficiently difficult to pass, as when Mr. Letterblair, the day after Madame Olenska's departure, had sent for him to go over the details of the trust which Mrs. Manson Mingott wished to create for her granddaughter. For a couple of hours Archer had examined the terms of the deed with his senior, all the while obscurely feeling that if he had been consulted it was for some reason other than the obvious one of his cousinship, and that the close of the conference would reveal it. Well, the lady can't deny that it's a handsome arrangement, Mr. Letterblair had summed up, after mumbling over a summary of the settlement. In fact, I'm bound to say she's been treated pretty handsomely all around. All around, Archer echoed with a touch of derision, do you refer to her husband's proposal to give her back her own money? Mr. Letterblair's bushy eyebrows went up a fraction of an inch. My dear sir, the law's the law, and your wife's cousin was married under the French law. It's to be presumed she knew what that meant. Even if she did, what happened subsequently? But Archer paused. Mr. Letterblair had laid his pen handle against his big corrugated nose, and was looking down it with the expression assumed by virtuous elderly gentlemen when they wish their youngers to understand that virtue is not synonymous with ignorance. My dear sir, I've no wish to extenuate the Count's transgressions, but on the other side, I wouldn't put my hand in the fire. Well, but there hadn't been tit-for-tat with the young champion, Mr. Letterblair unlocked a drawer, and pushed a folded paper towards Archer. This report, the result of discreet inquiries. And then, as Archer made no effort to glance at the paper or to repudiate the suggestion, the lawyer somewhat flatly continued, I don't say it's conclusive, you observe, far from it, but straws show, and, on the whole... It's eminently satisfactory for all parties that this dignified solution has been reached. Oh, eminently, Archer assented, pushing back the paper. 
A day or two later, on responding to a summons from Mrs. Manson Mingott, his soul had been more deeply tried. He had found the old lady depressed and querulous. "'You know she's deserted me,' she began at once, and without waiting for his reply, "'Oh, don't ask me why. She gave so many reasons that I've forgotten them all. My private belief is that she couldn't face the boredom. At any rate, that's what Augusta and my daughters-in-law think. And I don't know that I altogether blame her. Olenski's a finished scoundrel, but life with him must have been a good deal gayer than it is in Fifth Avenue.' Not that the family would admit that. They think Fifth Avenue is heaven with the Rue de la Paix thrown in. And poor Ellen, of course, has no idea of going back to her husband. She held out as firmly as ever against that. So she's to settle down in Paris with that fool Medora. Well, Paris is Paris, and you can keep a carriage there on next to nothing. But she was gay as a bird, and I shall miss her. Two tears, the parched tears of the old rolled down her puffy cheeks and vanished into the abysses of her bosom. "'All I ask is,' she concluded, "'that they shouldn't bother me any more. "'I really must be allowed to digest my gruel.' And she twinkled a little wistfully at Archer. It was that evening, on his return home, that May announced her intention of giving a farewell dinner to her cousin— Madame Olenska's name had not been pronounced between them since the night of her flight to Washington, and Archer looked at his wife with surprise. "'A dinner? Why?' he interrogated. Her color rose. "'But you like Ellen. I thought you'd be pleased.' "'It's awfully nice, your putting it in that way, but I really don't see. I mean to do it, Newland,' she said, quietly rising and going to her desk." Here are the invitations, all written. Mother helped me. She agrees that we ought to. She paused, embarrassed and yet smiling, and Archer suddenly saw before him the embodied image of the family. Oh, all right, he said, staring with unseeing eyes at the list of guests that she had put in his hand. When he entered the drawing-room before dinner, May was stooping over the fire and trying to coax the logs to burn in their unaccustomed setting of immaculate tiles. The tall lamps were all lit, and Mr. Vanderloyden's orchids had been conspicuously disposed in various receptacles of modern porcelain and knobby silver. Mrs. Newland Archer's drawing-room was generally thought a great success. A gilt bamboo jardiniere, in which the primulas and scenarias were punctually renewed, blocked the access to the bay window, where the old-fashioned would have preferred a bronze reduction of the Venus de Milo. The sofas and armchairs of pale brocade were cleverly grouped about little plush tables, densely covered with silver toys, porcelain animals, and efflorescent photograph frames and tall, rosy-shaded lamps shot up like tropical flowers among the palms. "'I don't think Ellen has ever seen this room lighted up,' said May, rising flushed from her struggle and sending about her a glance of pardonable pride. The brass tongs which she had propped against the side of the chimney fell with a crash that drowned her husband's answer, and before he could restore them, Mr. and Mrs. Vanderloyden were announced.'
The other guests quickly followed, for it was known that the Vanderloydens liked to dine punctually. The room was nearly full, and Archer was engaged in showing to Mrs. Selfridge Mary a small, highly varnished, Verbeckhoven study of sheep, which Mr. Welland had given May for Christmas, when he found Madame Olenska at his side. She was excessively pale, and her pallor made her dark hair seem denser and heavier than ever. Perhaps that, or the fact that she had wound several rows of amber beads about her neck, reminded him suddenly of the little Ellen Mingott he had danced with at children's parties when Medora Manson had first brought her to New York. The amber beads were trying to her complexion, or her dress was perhaps unbecoming. Her face looked lusterless and almost ugly, and he had never loved it as he did at that minute. Their hands met, and he thought he heard her say, Yes, we're sailing tomorrow in the Russia. Then there was an unmeaning noise of opening doors, and after an interval May's voice, Newland, dinner's been announced. Won't you please take Ellen in? Madame Olenska put her hand on his arm, and he noticed that the hand was ungloved, and remembered how he had kept his eyes fixed on it the evening he had sat with her in the little Twenty-Third Street drawing-room. All the beauty that had forsaken her face seemed to have taken refuge in the long, pale fingers and faintly dimpled knuckles on his sleeve, and he said to himself, If it were only to see her hand again, I should have to follow her. It was only at an entertainment ostensibly offered to a foreign visitor that Mrs. Vanderloyden could suffer the diminution of being placed on her host's left. The fact of Madame Olenska's foreignness could hardly have been more adroitly emphasized than by this farewell tribute, and Mrs. Vanderloyden accepted her displacement with an affability which left no doubt as to her approval. There were certain things that had to be done, and if done at all, done handsomely and thoroughly. And one of these in the old New York Code was the tribal rally around a kinswoman about to be eliminated from the tribe. There was nothing on earth that the Wellens and Mingots would not have done to proclaim their unalterable affection for the Countess Olenska, now that her passage for Europe was engaged. And Archer, at the head of his table, sat marveling at the silent, untiring activity with which her popularity had been retrieved, grievances against her silenced, her past countenanced, and her present irradiated by the family approval. Mrs. Vanderloyden shone on her with a dim benevolence which was her nearest approach to cordiality, and Mr. Vanderloyden, from his seat at May's right, cast down the table glances plainly intended to justify all the carnations he had sent from Scoiter Cliff. Archer, who seemed to be assisting at the scene in a state of odd imponderability, 
as if he floated somewhere between chandelier and ceiling, wondered at nothing so much as his own share in the proceedings. As his glance traveled from one placid, well-fed face to another, he saw all the harmless-looking people engaged upon May's canvas-backs as a band of dumb conspirators, and himself and the pale woman on his right as the center of their conspiracy. And then it came over him, in a vast flash made up of many broken gleams, that to all of them he and Madame Olenska were lovers, lovers in the extreme sense, peculiar to foreign vocabularies. He guessed himself to have been, for months, the center of countless, silently observing eyes and patiently listening ears. He understood that, by means as yet unknown to him, the separation between himself and the partner of his guilt had been achieved, and that now the whole tribe had rallied about his wife on the tacit assumption that nobody knew anything or had ever imagined anything, and that the occasion of the entertainment was simply May Archer's natural desire to take an affectionate leave of her friend and cousin. It was the old New York way of taking life without effusion of blood, the way of people who dreaded scandal more than disease, who placed decency above courage, and who considered that nothing was more ill-bred than scenes, except the behavior of those who gave rise to them. As these thoughts succeeded each other in his mind, Archer felt like a prisoner in the center of an armed camp. He looked about the table and guessed at the inexorableness of his captors, from the tone in which, over the asparagus from Florida, they were dealing with Beaufort and his wife. It's to show me, he thought, what would happen to me and a deathly sense of the superiority of implication and analogy over direct action, and of silence over rash words, closed in on him like the doors of the family vault. He laughed and met Mrs. Vanderloyden's startled eyes. "'You think it laughable,' she said, with a pinched smile." Of course, poor Regina's idea of remaining in New York has its ridiculous side, I suppose. And Archer muttered, of course. At this point, he became conscious that Madame Olenska's other neighbor had been engaged for some time with the lady on his right. At the same moment, he saw that May, serenely enthroned between Mr. Vanderloyden and Mr. Selfridge Mary, had cast a quick glance down the table. It was evident that the host and the lady on his right could not sit through the whole meal in silence. He turned to Madame Olenska, and her pale smile met him. Oh, do let's see it through, it seemed to say. Did you find the journey tiring? 
he asked in a voice that surprised him by its naturalness. And she answered that, on the contrary, she had seldom traveled with fewer discomforts. Except, you know, the dreadful heat in the train, she added, and he remarked that she would not suffer from that particular hardship in the country she was going to. I never, he declared with intensity, was more nearly frozen than once in April, in the train between Calais and Paris. She said she did not wonder, but remarked that, after all, one could always carry an extra rug, and that every form of travel had its hardships. To which he abruptly returned that he thought them all of no account, compared with the blessedness of getting away. She changed color, and he added, his voice suddenly rising in pitch, I mean to do a lot of traveling myself before long. A tremor crossed her face, and leaning over to Reggie Chivers, he cried out, I say, Reggie, what do you say to a trip around the world? Now, next month, I mean. I'm game if you are. At which Mrs. Reggie piped up that she could not think of letting Reggie go till after the Martha Washington ball she was getting up for the blind asylum in Easter week. And her husband placidly observed that by that time he would have to be practicing for the international polo match. But Mr. Selfridge Mary had caught the phrase, Round the World, and having once circled the globe in his steam yacht, he seized the opportunity to send down the table several striking items concerning the shallowness of the Mediterranean ports. Though, after all, he added, it didn't matter, for when you'd seen Athens and Smyrna and Constantinople, what else was there? And Mrs. Mary said she could never be too grateful to Dr. Bencombe for having made them promise not to go to Naples on account of the fever. But you must have three weeks to do India properly, her husband conceded, anxious to have it understood that he was no frivolous globetrotter. And at this point, the ladies went up to the drawing room. In the library, in spite of weightier presences, Lawrence Lefferts predominated. The talk, as usual, had veered around to the Beauforts, and even Mr. Vanderloyden and Mr. Selfridge Mary, installed in the honorary armchairs tacitly reserved for them, paused to listen to the younger man's philippic. Never had Lefferts so abounded in the sentiments that adorn Christian manhood and exalt the sanctity of the home. Indignation lent him a scathing eloquence, and it was clear that if others had followed his example and acted as he talked, society would never have been weak enough to receive a foreign upstart like Beaufort. No, sir, not even if he'd married a Vanderloyden or a Lanning instead of a Dallas. And what chance would there have been, Lefferts wrathfully questioned, of his marrying into such a family as the Dallases, if he had not already wormed his way into certain houses, as people like Mrs. Lemuel Struthers had managed to worm theirs in his wake? If society chose to open its doors to vulgar women, the harm was not great, though the gain was doubtful. But once it got in the way of tolerating men of obscure origin and tainted wealth, the end was total disintegration, and at no distant date. If things go on at this pace, Lefferts thundered, 
looking like a young prophet dressed by pool, and who had not yet been stoned, we shall see our children fighting for invitations to swindlers' houses and marrying Beaufort's bastards. Oh, I say, dried mild, Reggie Chivers and young Newland protested, while Mr. Selfridge Mary looked genuinely alarmed and an expression of pain and disgust settled on Mr. Vanderloyden's sensitive face. Has he got any? cried Mr. Sillerton Jackson, pricking up his ears. And while Lefferts tried to turn the question with a laugh, the old gentleman twittered into Archer's ear. Queer those fellows who are always wanting to set things right. The people who have the worst cooks are always telling you they're poisoned when they dine out. But I hear there are pressing reasons for our friend Lawrence's diatribe. Typewriter this time, I understand. The talk swept past Archer like some senseless river running and running because it did not know enough to stop. He saw, on the faces about him, expressions of interest, amusement, and even mirth. He listened to the younger men's laughter, and to the praise of the Archer Madeira, which Mr. Vanderloyden and Mr. Mary were thoughtfully celebrating. Through it all, he was dimly aware of a general attitude of friendliness towards himself, as if the guard of the prisoner he felt himself to be were trying to soften his captivity. And the perception increased his passionate determination to be free. In the drawing-room, where they presently joined the ladies, he met May's triumphant eyes and read in them the conviction that everything had gone off beautifully. She rose from Madame Olenska's side, and immediately Mrs. Vanderloyden beckoned the latter to a seat on the gilt sofa where she throned. Mrs. Selfridge Mary bore across the room to join them, and it became clear to Archer that here also a conspiracy of rehabilitation and obliteration was going on. The silent organization which held his little world together was determined to put itself on record as never, for a moment, having questioned the propriety of Madame Olenska's conduct or the completeness of Archer's domestic felicity. All these amiable and inexorable persons were resolutely engaged in pretending to each other that they had never heard of, suspected, or even conceived possible, the least hint to the contrary. And from this tissue of elaborate mutual dissimulation, Archer once more disengaged the fact that New York believed him to be Madame Olenska's lover. He caught the glitter of victory in his wife's eyes, and for the first time understood that she shared the belief. The discovery roused a laughter of inner devils that reverberated through all his efforts to discuss the Martha Washington Ball with Mrs. Reggie Chivers and little Mrs. Newland. And so the evening swept on, running and running like a senseless river that did not know how to stop. At length he saw that Madame Olenska had risen and was saying goodbye. He understood that in a moment she would be gone, and tried to remember what he said to her at dinner, but he could not recall a single word they had exchanged. 
she went up to May, the rest of the company making a circle about her as she advanced. The two young women clasped hands. Then May bent forward and kissed her cousin. Certainly our hostess is much the handsomer of the two, Archie heard Reggie Chivers say in an undertone to young Mrs. Newland. And he remembered Beaufort's coarse sneer at May's ineffectual beauty. A moment later he was in the hall, putting Madame Olenska's cloak about her shoulders. Through all his confusion of mind, he had held fast to the resolve to say nothing that might startle or disturb her. Convinced that no power could now turn him from his purpose, he had found strength to let events shape themselves as they would. But as he followed Madame Olenska into the hall, he thought with a sudden hunger of being for a moment alone with her at the door of her carriage. "'Is your carriage here?' he asked, and at that moment Mrs. Vanderloyden, who was being majestically inserted into her sables, said gently, "'We are driving dear Ellen home.' Archer's heart gave a jerk, and Madame Olenska, clasping her cloak and fan with one hand, held out the other to him. "'Good-bye,' she said. "'Good-bye, but I shall see you soon in Paris,' he answered aloud. It seemed to him that he had shouted it. "'Oh,' she murmured, "'if you and May could come!' Mr. Vanderloyden advanced to give her his arm, and Archer turned to Mrs. Vanderloyden. For a moment, in the billowy darkness inside the big landau, he caught the dim oval of a face, eyes shining steadily, and she was gone. As he went up the steps, he crossed Lawrence Lefferts coming down with his wife. Lefferts caught his host by the sleeve, drawing back to let Gertrude pass. I say, old chap, do you mind just letting it be understood that I'm dining with you at the club tomorrow night? Thanks so much, you old brick. Good night. It did go off beautifully, didn't it? May questioned him from the threshold of the library. Archer roused himself with a start. As soon as the last carriage had driven away, he had come up to the library and shut himself in, with the hope that his wife, who still lingered below, would go straight to her room. But there she stood, pale and drawn, yet radiating the facetious energy of one who has passed beyond fatigue. "'May I come and talk it over?' she asked. Of course, if you like, but you must be awfully sleepy. No, I'm not sleepy. I should like to sit with you a little. Very well, he said, pushing her chair near the fire. She sat down, and he resumed his seat, but neither spoke for a long time. At length, Archer began abruptly. Since you're not tired and want to talk, there's something I must tell you. I tried the other night. She looked at him quickly. Yes, dear, something about yourself. About myself. You say you're not tired. Well, I am. Horribly tired. In an instant she was all tender anxiety. Oh, I've seen it coming on, Newland. You've been so wickedly overworked. 
Perhaps it's that. Anyhow, I want to make a break. A break? To give up the law? To go away, at any rate, at once, on a long trip, ever so far off, away from everything. He paused, conscious that he had failed in his attempt to speak with the indifference of a man who longs for a change and yet is too weary to welcome it. Do what he would, the cord of eagerness vibrated. Away from everything, he repeated. Ever so far? Where, for instance? she asked. Oh, I don't know. India or Japan? She stood up, and as he sat with bent head, his chin propped on his hands, he felt her warmly and fragrantly hovering over him. As far as that. But I'm afraid you can't, dear, she said in an unsteady voice. N not unless you take me with you. And then, as he was silent, she went on, in tones so clear and evenly pitched, that each separate syllable tapped like a little hammer on his brain. That is, if the doctors will let me go. But I'm afraid they won't. For you see, Newland, I've been sure since this morning of something I've been so longing and hoping for. He looked up at her with a sick stare. And she sank down, all dew and roses, and hid her face against his knee. Oh, my dear, he said, holding her to him while his cold hand stroked her hair. There was a long pause, which the inner devils filled with strident laughter. Then May freed herself from his arms and stood up. You didn't guess. Yes, I know. That is, of course, I hoped. They looked at each other for an instant, and again fell silent. Then, turning his eyes from hers, he asked abruptly, Have you told anyone else? Only Mama and your mother, she paused, and then added hurriedly, the blood flushing up to her forehead, that is, and Ellen. You know, I told you we'd had a long talk one afternoon, and how dear she was to me. Ah, said Archer, his heart stopping. He felt that his wife was watching him intently. Did you mind my telling her first, Newland? Mind? Why should I? He made a last effort to collect himself. But that was a fortnight ago, wasn't it? I thought you said you weren't sure till today. Her color burned deeper, but she held his gaze. No, I wasn't sure then, but I told her I was. And you see, I was right, she exclaimed, her blue eyes wet with victory. End of chapter 33 This is a LibriVox recording. 
All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit www.librivox.org. The Age of Innocence, a novel by Edith Wharton. Read for LibriVox by Brenda Dane. Chapter 34 Newland Archer sat at the writing table in his library in East 39th Street. He had just got back from a big official reception for the inauguration of the new galleries at the Metropolitan Museum, and the spectacle of those great spaces, crowded with the spoils of the ages, where the throng of fashion circulated through a series of scientifically catalogued treasures, had suddenly pressed on a rusted spring of memory. "'Why, this used to be one of the old Cessnola rooms,' he heard someone say. And instantly everything about him vanished, and he was sitting alone on a hard leather divan against a radiator, while a slight figure in a long sealskin cloak moved away down the meagerly fitted vista of the old museum. The vision had roused a host of other associations, and he sat looking with new eyes at the library which, for over thirty years, had been the scene of his solitary musings and of all the family confabulations. It was the room in which most of the real things of his life had happened. There his wife, nearly twenty-six years ago, had broken to him with a blushing circumlocution that would have caused the young women of the new generation to smile, the news that she was to have a child. And there their eldest boy, Dallas, too delicate to be taken to church in midwinter, had been christened by their old friend, the Bishop of New York, the ample, magnificent, irreplaceable bishop, so long the pride and ornament of his diocese. There Dallas had first staggered across the floor shouting, Dad! while May and the nurse laughed behind the door. There their second child, Mary, who was so like her mother, had announced her engagement to the dullest and most reliable of Reggie Chivers's many sons. And there Archer had kissed her through her wedding veil before they went down to the motor, which was to carry them to Grace Church. For in a world where all else had reeled on its foundations, the Grace Church wedding remained an unchanged institution. It was in the library that he and May always discussed the future of their children. The studies of Dallas and his young brother Bill, Mary's incurable indifference to accomplishments and passion for sport and philanthropy, and the vague leanings toward art, which had finally landed the restless and curious Dallas in the office of a rising New York architect. The young men nowadays were emancipating themselves from the law and business and taking up all sorts of new things. If they were not absorbed in state politics or municipal reform, the chances were that they were going in for Central American archaeology 
for architecture or landscape engineering, taking a keen and learned interest in the pre-revolutionary buildings of their own country, studying and adapting Georgian types, and protesting at the meaningless use of the word colonial. Nobody nowadays had colonial houses, except the millionaire grocers of the suburbs. But above all, sometimes Archer put it above all, it was in that library that the governor of New York, coming down from Albany one evening to dine and spend the night, had turned to his host and said, banging his clenched fist on the table and gnashing his eyeglasses, "'Hang the professional politician. You're the kind of man the country wants, Archer. If the stable's ever to be cleaned out, men like you have got to lend a hand in the cleaning.' "'Men like you.' How Archer had glowed at the phrase. How eagerly he had risen up to the call. It was an echo of Ned Winsett's old appeal to roll his sleeves up and get down into the muck, but spoken by a man who set the example of the gesture, and whose summons to follow him was irresistible. Archer, as he looked back, was not sure that men like himself were what the country needed, at least in the active service to which Theodore Roosevelt had pointed. In fact, there was reason to think it did not, for after a year in the State Assembly he had not been re-elected, and had dropped back, thankfully, into obscure, if useful, municipal work. And from that again to the writing of occasional articles in one of the reforming weeklies that were trying to shake the country out of its apathy. It was little enough to look back on. But when he remembered to what the young men of his generation and set had looked forward, the narrow groove of money-making, sport, and society, to which their vision had been limited, even his small contribution to the new state of things seemed to count, as each brick counts in a well-built wall, he had done little in public life. He would always be by nature a contemplative and a dilettante. But he had had high things to contemplate, great things to delight in, and one great man's friendship to be his strength and pride. He had been, in short, what people were beginning to call a good citizen— in New York, for many years past, every new movement, philanthropic, municipal, or artistic, had taken account of his opinion and wanted his name. People said, Ask Archer, when there was a question of starting the first school for crippled children, reorganizing the Museum of Art, founding the Grolier Club, inaugurating the new library, or getting up a new society of chamber music. His days were full, and they were filled decently. He supposed it was all a man ought to ask. Something he knew he had missed, the flower of life. But he thought of it now as a thing so unattainable and improbable that to have repined would have been like despairing because one had not drawn the first prize in a lottery. 
There were a hundred million tickets in his lottery, and there was only one prize. The chances had been too decidedly against him. When he thought of Ellen Olenska, it was abstractly, serenely, as one might think of some imaginary beloved in a book or a picture. She had become the composite vision of all that he had missed. That vision, faint and tenuous as it was, had kept him from thinking of other women. He had been what was called a faithful husband. And when May had suddenly died, carried off by the infectious pneumonia through which she had nursed their youngest child, he had honestly mourned her. Their long years together had shown him that it did not so much matter if marriage was a dull duty, as long as it kept the dignity of a duty. Lapsing from that, it became a mere battle of ugly appetites. Looking about him, he honored his own past and mourned for it. After all, there was good in the old ways. His eyes making the round of the room, done over by Dallas with English mezzotints, Chippendale cabinets, bits of chosen blue and white and pleasantly shaded electric lamps, came back to the old East Lake writing table that he had never been willing to banish, and to his first photograph of May, which still kept its place beside his inkstand. There she was, tall, round-bosomed and willowy, in her starched muslin and flapping leghorn, as he had seen her under the orange trees in the mission garden. And as he had seen her that day, so she had remained, never quite at the same height, yet never far below it, generous, faithful, unwearied, but so lacking in imagination, so incapable of growth, that the world of her youth had fallen into pieces and rebuilt itself, without her ever being conscious of the change. This hard, bright blindness had kept her immediate horizon apparently unaltered. Her incapacity to recognize change made her children conceal their views from her as Archer concealed his. There had been, from the first, a joint pretense of sameness, a kind of innocent family hypocrisy in which father and children had unconsciously collaborated. And she had died, thinking the world a good place, full of loving and harmonious households like her own, and resigned to leave it because she was convinced that, whatever happened, Newland would continue to inculcate in Dallas the same principles and prejudices which had shaped his parents' lives, and that Dallas, in turn, when Newland followed her, would transmit the sacred trust to little Bill. And of Mary, she was sure as of her own self. So, having snatched little Bill from the grave and given her life in the effort, she went contentedly to her place in the Archer vault in St. Mark's, where Mrs. Archer 
already lay safe from the terrifying trend of which her daughter-in-law had never even become aware of. Opposite May's portrait stood one of her daughter. Mary Chivers was as tall and fair as her mother, but large-waisted, flat-chested and slightly slouching, as the altered fashion required. Mary Chivers's mighty feats of athleticism could not have been performed with the twenty-inch waist that May Archer's azure sash so easily spanned. And the difference seemed symbolic. The mother's life had been as closely girt as her figure. Mary, who was no less conventional and no more intelligent, yet led a larger life and held more tolerant views. There was good in the new order, too. The telephone clicked, and Archer, turning from the photographs, unhooked the transmitter at his elbow. How far they were from the days when the legs of the brass-buttoned messenger boy had been New York's only means of quick communication. Chicago wants you. Ah, it must be a long distance from Dallas, who had been sent to Chicago by his firm to talk over the plan of the lakeside palace they were to build for a young millionaire with ideas. The firm always sent Dallas on such errands. Hello, Dad. Yes, Dallas. I say, how do you feel about sailing on Wednesday? Mauritania. Yes, next Wednesday, as ever is. Our client wants me to look at some Italian gardens before we settle anything and has asked me to nip over on the next boat. I've got to be back on the 1st of June. The voice broke into a joyful, conscious laugh. So we must look alive. I say, Dad, I want your help. Do come. Dallas seemed to be speaking in the room. The voice was as nearby and natural as if he had been lounging in his favorite armchair by the fire. The fact would not ordinarily have surprised Archer, for long-distance telephoning had become as much a matter of course as electric lighting and five-day Atlantic voyages. But the laugh did startle him. It still seemed wonderful that across all those miles and miles of country— forest, river, mountain, prairie, roaring cities, and busy indifferent millions, Dallas's laugh should be able to say, Of course, whatever happens, I must get back on the first, because Fanny Beaufort and I are to be married on the fifth. The voice began again. Think it over. No, sir, not a minute. You've got to say yes now. If you can allege a single reason, no, I knew it. Then it's a go, eh? Because I count on you to ring up the Cunard office first thing tomorrow morning. And you'd better book a return on a boat from Marseille. I say, Dad, it'll be our last time together in this kind of way. Oh, good, I knew you would. Chicago rang off, and Archer rose and began to pace up and down the room. It would be their last time together in this kind of way. The boy was right. They would have lots of other times— after Dallas's marriage, his father was sure, for the two were born comrades, and Fanny Beaufort, whatever one might think of her, did not seem likely to interfere with their intimacy. On the contrary, from what he had seen of her, he thought she would be naturally included in it. Still, change was change, and differences were differences, and much as he felt himself drawn towards his future daughter-in-law, 
it was tempting to seize this last chance of being alone with his boy. There was no reason why he should not seize it, except the profound one that he had lost the habit of travel. May had disliked to move, except for valid reasons, such as taking the children to the sea or in the mountains. She could imagine no other motive for leaving the house in 39th Street or their comfortable quarters at the Wellens in Newport. After Dallas had taken his degree, she had thought it her duty to travel for six months, and the whole family had made the old-fashioned tour through England, Switzerland, and Italy. Their time being limited, no one knew why, they had omitted France. Archer remembered Dallas's wrath at being asked to contemplate Mont Blanc instead of Reims. But Mary and Bill wanted mountain climbing, and had already yawned their way in Dallas's wake through the English cathedrals. And May, always fair to her children, had insisted on holding the balance evenly between their athletic and artistic proclivities. She had indeed proposed that her husband should go to Paris for a fortnight, and join them on the Italian lakes, after they had done Switzerland. But Archer had declined. "'We'll stick together,' he said. And May's face had brightened at his setting such a good example to Dallas. Since her death, nearly two years before, there had been no reason for his continuing in the same routine. His children had urged him to travel. Mary Chivers had felt sure it would do him good to go abroad and see the galleries. The very mysteriousness of such a cure made her the more confident of its efficacy. But Archer had found himself held fast by habit, by memories, by a sudden, startled shrinking from new things. Now, as he reviewed his past, he saw into what a deep rut he had sunk. The worst of doing one's duty was that it apparently unfitted one for doing anything else. At least, that was the view that the men of his generation had taken. The trenchant divisions between right and wrong, honest and dishonest, respectable and the reverse, had left so little scope for the unforeseen. There are moments when a man's imagination, so easily subdued to what it lives in, suddenly rises above its daily level and surveys the long windings of destiny. Archer hung there and wondered. What was left of the little world he had grown up in, and whose standards had bent and bound him? He remembered a sneering prophecy of poor Lawrence Lefferts, uttered years ago in that very room. If things go on at this rate, our children will be marrying Beaufort's bastards. It was just what Archer's eldest son, the pride of his life, was doing, and nobody wondered or reproved. Even the boy's Aunt Janie, who still looked so exactly as she used to in her elderly youth, had taken her mother's emeralds and seed pearls out of their pink cotton wool and carried them with her own twitching hands to the future bride. And Fanny Beaufort, 
instead of looking disappointed at not receiving a set from a Paris jeweler, had exclaimed at their old-fashioned beauty, and declared that when she wore them she should feel like an Isabey miniature. Fanny Beaufort, who had appeared in New York at eighteen, after the death of her parents, had won its heart, much as Madame Olenska had won it thirty years earlier. Only instead of being distrustful and afraid of her, society took her joyfully for granted. She was pretty, amusing, and accomplished. What more did anyone want? Nobody was narrow-minded enough to rake up against her the half-forgotten facets of her father's past and her own origin. Only the older people remembered so obscure an incident in the business life of New York as Beaufort's failure, or the fact that after his wife's death he had been quietly married to the notorious Fanny Ring, and had left the country with his new wife and a little girl who inherited her beauty. He was subsequently heard of in Constantinople, then in Russia, and a dozen years later American travelers were handsomely entertained by him in Buenos Aires, where he represented a large insurance agency. He and his wife died there, in an odor of prosperity, and one day their orphan daughter had appeared in New York in charge of May Archer's sister-in-law, Mrs. Jack Welland, whose husband had been appointed the girl's guardian. The fact threw her into almost cousinly relationship with Newland Archer's children, and nobody was surprised when Dallas's engagement was announced. Nothing could more clearly give the measure of the distance that the world had traveled. People nowadays were too busy, busy with reforms and movements, with fads and fetishes and frivolities, to bother much about their neighbors. And of what account was anybody's past in the huge kaleidoscope where all the social atoms spun around on the same plane? Newland Archer, looking out of his hotel window at the stately gaiety of the Paris streets, felt his heart beating with the confusion and eagerness of youth. It was long since it had thus plunged and reared under his widening waistcoat, leaving him the next minute with an empty breast and hot temples. He wondered if it was thus that his son's conducted itself in the presence of Miss Fanny Beaufort, and decided that it was not. It functions as actively, no doubt, but the rhythm is different, he reflected, recalling the cool composure with which the young man had announced his engagement, and taken for granted that his family would approve. The difference is that these young people take it for granted that they're going to get whatever they want, and that we almost took it for granted that we shouldn't. Only, I wonder, the thing one's so certain of in advance, can it ever make one's heart beat as wildly? It was the day after their arrival in Paris, and the spring sunshine held Archer in his open window, above the wide, silvery prospect of Place Vendôme. One of the things he had stipulated, almost the only one, when he had agreed to come abroad with Dallas, 
was that, in Paris, he shouldn't be made to go to one of the newfangled palaces. Oh, all right, of course, Dallas good-naturedly agreed. I'll take you to some jolly old-fashioned place, the Bristol, say, leaving his father speechless at hearing that the century-long home of kings and emperors was now spoken of as an old-fashioned inn, where one went for its quaint inconveniences and lingering local color. Archer had pictured often enough, in the first impatient years, the scene of his return to Paris. Then the personal vision had faded, and he had simply tried to see the city as the setting of Madame Olenska's life. Sitting alone at night, in his library, after the household had gone to bed, he had evoked the radiant outbreak of spring down the avenues of horse-chestnuts, the flowers and statues in the public gardens, the whiff of lilacs from the flower-carts, the majestic roll of the river under the great bridges, and the life of art and study and pleasure that filled each mighty artery to bursting. Now the spectacle was before him in its glory, and as he looked out on it he felt shy, old-fashioned, inadequate, a mere gray speck of a man compared with the ruthless, magnificent fellow he had dreamed of being. Dallas's hand came down cheerily on his shoulder. "'Hello, Father, this is something like it, isn't it?' They stood for a while, looking out in silence, and the young man continued, "'Oh, by the way, I've got a message for you. The Countess Olenska expects us both at half-past five. He said it lightly, carelessly, as he might have imparted any casual item of information, such as the hour at which their train was to leave for Florence the next evening. Archer looked at him, and thought he saw in his gay young eyes a gleam of his great-grandmother Mingott's malice. "'Oh, didn't I tell you?' Dallas pursued. "'Fanny made me swear to do three things while I was in Paris. "'Get her the score of the latest Debussy songs. "'Go to the Grand Guignol, and see Madame Olenska. "'You know, she was awfully good to Fanny "'when Mr. Beaufort sent her over from Buenos Aires to the Assumption. "'Fanny hadn't any friends in Paris, "'and Madame Olenska used to be kind to her "'and trot her about on holidays. "'I believe she was a great friend of the first Mrs. Beaufort's. "'And she's our cousin, of course.' So I rang her up this morning, before I went out, and told her you and I were here for two days and wanted to see her. Archer continued to stare at him. You told her I was here. Of course, why not? Dallas's eyebrows went up whimsically. Then, getting no answer, he slipped his arm through his father's with a confidential pressure. I say, father, what was she like? Archer felt his color rise under his son's unabashed gaze. Wasn't she most awfully lovely? Lovely? I don't know. She was different. Ah, there you have it. That's what it always comes to, doesn't it? When she comes, she's different, and one doesn't know why. It's exactly what I feel about Fanny. His father drew back a step, releasing his arm. "'About Fanny? But, my dear fellow, I should hope so. Only I don't see—' "'Dash it, Dad, don't be prehistoric. Wasn't she—once? 
your Fanny. Dallas belonged, body and soul, to the new generation. He was the firstborn of Newland and May Archer, yet it had never been possible to inculcate in him even the rudiments of reserve. What's the use of making mysteries? It only makes people want to nose them out. He always objected when enjoined to discretion. But Archer, meeting his eyes, saw the filial light under their banter. My Fanny. Well, the woman you'd have chucked everything for, only you didn't, continued his surprising son. I didn't, echoed Archer with a kind of solemnity. No, you date, you see, dear old boy, but mother said, your mother. Yes, the day before she died. It was when she sent for me alone, you remember. She said she knew we were safe with you and always would be, because once, when she asked you to, you'd given up the thing you most wanted. Archer received this strange communication in silence. His eyes remained unseeingly fixed on the thronged, sunlit square below the window. At length, he said in a low voice, She never asked me. No, I forgot. You never did ask each other anything, did you? And you never told each other anything. You just sat and watched each other and guessed at what was going on underneath. A deaf and dumb asylum, in fact. Well, I back your generation for knowing more about each other's private thoughts than we ever have time to find out about our own. I say, Dad, Dallas broke off, you're not angry with me. If you are, let's make it up and go to lunch at Henri's. I've got to rush out to Versailles afterwards. Archer did not accompany his son to Versailles. He preferred to spend the afternoon in solitary roamings through Paris. He had to deal all at once with the packed regrets and stifled memories of an inarticulate lifetime. After a little while, he did not regret Dallas's indiscretion. It seemed to take an iron band from his heart to know that, after all, someone had guessed and pitied, and that it should have been his wife moved him indescribably. Dallas, for all his affectionate insight, would not have understood that. To the boy, no doubt, the episode was only a pathetic instance of vain frustration, of wasted forces. But was it really no more? For a long time Archer sat on a bench in the Champs-Élysées and wondered while the stream of life rolled by. A few streets away, a few hours away, Ellen Olenska waited. She had never gone back to her husband, and when he had died some years before, she had made no change in her way of living. There was nothing now to keep her and Archer apart, and that afternoon he was to see her. He got up and walked across the Place de la Concorde and the Tuileries Gardens to the Louvre. She had once told him that she often went there, and he had a fancy to spend the intervening time in a place where he could think of her as perhaps having lately been. For an hour or more he wandered from gallery to gallery, 
through the dazzle of afternoon light, and one by one the pictures burst on him in their half-forgotten splendor, filling his soul with the long echoes of beauty. After all, his life had been too starved. Suddenly, before an effulgent Titian, he found himself saying, But I'm only fifty-seven. And then he turned away. For such summer dreams it was too late, but surely not, for a quiet harvest of friendship, of comradeship in the blessed hush of her nearness. He went back to the hotel where he and Dallas were to meet, and together they walked again across the Place de la Concorde and over the bridge that leads to the Chambre la Députée. Dallas, unconscious of what was going on in his father's mind, was talking excitedly and abundantly of Versailles. He had had but one previous glimpse of it, during a holiday trip in which he had tried to pack all the sights he had been deprived of when he had had to go with the family to Switzerland, and tumultuous enthusiasm and cocksure criticism tripped each other up on his lips. As Archer listened, his sense of inadequacy and inexpressiveness increased. The boy was not insensitive, he knew, but he had the facility and self-confidence that came of looking at fate not as a master, but as an equal. That's it. They feel equal to things. They know their way about, he mused, thinking of his son as the spokesman of a new generation, which had swept away all the old landmarks, and with them the signposts and the danger signal. Suddenly Dallas stopped short, grasping his father's arm. Oh, by Jove! he exclaimed. They had come out into the great tree-planted space before the invalade. The dome of Mansart floated ethereally above the budding trees and the long grey front of the building, drawing up into itself all the rays of afternoon light that hung there like a visible symbol of the race's glory. Archer knew that Madame Olenska lived in a square near one of the avenues radiating from the Invalade, and he had pictured the quarter as quiet and almost obscure, forgetting the central splendor that lit it up. Now, by some queer process of association, that golden light became for him the pervading illumination in which she lived. For nearly thirty years, her life, of which he knew so strangely little, had been spent in this rich atmosphere that he already felt to be too dense and yet too stimulating for his lungs. He thought of the theaters she must have been to, the pictures she must have looked at, the sober and splendid old houses she must have frequented, the people she must have talked with, the incessant stir of ideas, curiosities, images, and associations thrown out by an intensely social race in a setting of immemorial manners. And suddenly he remembered the young Frenchman, who had once said to him, Ah, good conversation! There is nothing like it, is there? Archer had not seen Monsieur Riviere 
or heard of him for nearly thirty years, and that fact gave the measure of his ignorance of Madame Olenska's existence. More than half a lifetime divided them, and she had spent the long interval among people he did not know, in a society he but faintly guessed at, in conditions he would never wholly understand. During that time he had been living with his youthful memory of her, but she had doubtless had other and more tangible companionship. Perhaps she, too, had kept her memory of him as something apart. But if she had, it must have been like a relic in a small, dim chapel, where there was no time to pray every day. They had crossed the Place des Invalades, and were walking down one of the thoroughfares flanking the building. It was a quiet quarter, after all, in spite of its splendor and its history, and the fact gave one an idea of the riches Paris had to draw on, since scenes such as this were left to the few and the indifferent. The day was fading into a soft, sun-shot haze, pricked here and there by a yellow electric light, and passers were rare in the little square into which they had turned. Dallas stopped again and looked up. "'It must be here,' he said, slipping his arm through his father's, with a movement from which Archer's shyness did not shrink. And they stood together, looking up at the house. It was a modern building, without distinctive character, but many-windowed and pleasantly balconied up its wide, cream-colored front. On one of the upper balconies, which hung well above the rounded tops of the horse-chestnuts in the square, the awnings were still lowered, as though the sun had just left it. I wonder which floor, Dallas conjectured, and moving towards the porte-cochere, he put his head inside the porter's lodge and came back to say, The fifth. It must be the one with the awnings. Archer remained motionless, gazing at the upper windows as if the end of their pilgrimage had been attained. I say, you know, it's nearly six, his son at length reminded him. The father glanced away at an empty bench under the trees. I believe I'll sit there a moment, he said. "'Why, aren't you well?' his son exclaimed. "'Oh, perfectly. But I should like you, please, to go up without me.' Dallas paused before him, visibly bewildered. "'But I say, Dad, do you mean you won't come up at all?' "'I don't know,' said Archer slowly. "'If you don't, she won't understand. "'Go, my boy, perhaps I shall follow you.' Dallas gave him a long look through the twilight. But what on earth shall I say? My dear fellow, don't you always know what to say? His father rejoined with a smile. Very well, I shall say you're old-fashioned and prefer walking up the five flights because you don't like lifts. His father smiled again. Say I'm old-fashioned. That's enough. Dallas looked at him again and then, with an incredulous gesture, passed out of sight under the vaulted doorway. 
Archer sat down on the bench and continued to gaze at the awninged balcony. He calculated the time it would take his son to be carried up in the lift on the fifth floor, to ring the bell and be admitted to the hall, and then ushered into the drawing room. He pictured Dallas entering that room with his quick, assured step and high, delightful smile, and wondered if the people were right who said that his boy took after him. Then he tried to see the persons already in the room, for probably at that sociable hour there would be more than one, and among them a dark lady, pale and dark, who would look up quickly, half-rise and hold out a long, thin hand with three rings on it. He thought she would be sitting in a sofa corner near the fire, with azaleas banked behind her on a table. It's more real to me here than if I went up, he suddenly heard himself say. And the fear, lest that last shadow of reality should lose its edge, kept him rooted to his seat as the minutes succeeded each other. He sat for a long time on the bench in the thickening dusk, his eyes never turning from the balcony. At length a light shone through the windows, and a moment later a manservant came out on the balcony, drew up the awnings, and closed the shutters. At that, as if it had been the signal he waited for, Newland Archer got up slowly and walked back alone to his hotel. The End